You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Patrick, a slimmed down version of the Beltway Briefing on this dreary Friday morning, at least dreary in Bethesda, Maryland. Interesting week this week. We had the arraignment in New York City of former President Trump associated with his hush money payments to a porn star, which is, it's hard for me not to say that without laughing. But the fact of the matter is the former president of the United States appeared in a courtroom for 30 alleged felonies. And there was a whole discussion and debate leading up to the unsealing of the indictment. Were these going to be misdemeanors? Was there maybe one felony? Uh, There turned out to be 30 charges, 30 felony charges. He looked to me pretty awful in the courtroom. I know he's, he's defiant was defiant afterwards and of course you know defiant beforehand but does any does any of this matter do you think it matters rodney that former president was in court on criminal charges from a political point of view uh, from a political point of view for his most basic supporters no but from a precedent setting point of view when you look at this case uh this is going to have some long-term consequences on the history of our country. Even Democrats like Andy McKay, and I remember there was nobody who went after President <laughs> Trump more than Andy McCabe. Former was, deputy FBI director. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, he even said these charges are pretty, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but they're pretty flimsy. And, and at some point, we have to get back to what does our nation of laws mean? Does it mean that when you have a political difference with someone, does that mean you use the Justice Department? Does that mean you use the justice system to go after them? Or do you let those differences be solved at the ballot box? I think what this is going to do is set a precedent that all future presidents, if there's a rogue GOP prosecutor, they will go after a Democrat former president. The same has been said and has been set because of Alvin Bragg. Patrick. I agree. I think from a political standpoint, I agree with Rodney. I mean, his most fervent supporters are with him. I think regardless, they're probably more revved up now for sure. And what impact that has on the primaries next year, I have no idea. And we'll just have to see kind of how the theatrics of the trial play out. I think the precedent setting part is real. I think in the United States, we allow a certain degree of deference toward our former presidents. And, you know, I was thinking back trying to, you know, it was it was obviously this was the first time it had ever happened. But I was remembering and reading President Clinton's autobiography that, you know, there was real concern from him and his legal team that given what had happened to him and, you know, that he had lied under oath in the Jones deposition that, you know, would his most fervent enemies kind of go after him in a post-presidency and try to indict him for behavior that had taken place in office. Ultimately, that didn't happen. The special counsel 
um, the independent counsel concluded the investigation and we kind of all know what happened from there. But yeah, there, you know, I, I think what you saw amongst legal commentators and we were all texting, we all kind of saw the same, you know, responses from folks. I think there's some real nervousness about what this means going forward. And what I heard from Democrats over and over again, you heard it in the press, I heard it just from friends of mine, people I talked to, is this refrain that this shouldn't have been the first precedent setting case that I think, you know, the accusations of trying to overthrow the election, you know, subvert the will of the people, some of the some of the stuff that happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election. I think a lot of Democrats feel like that is worth maybe breaking this precedent for if, if there's a legal case there. But, you know, a scheme on hush money payments about the Stormy Daniels stuff that happened during the campaign, campaign finance related stuff. It just didn't seem to a lot of folks like this should have been like this is the best case and this is the one. And then on the same token, we talked about the uh, Rodney you mentioned, like his most fervent supporters. You know, the most fervent Trump haters, they don't care. They they don't care what the case is. They just want to see the guy in prison. So so you have that that perspective, too. I don't think that's a particularly smart perspective, because when the shoe's on the other foot, that could be pretty dangerous. But Howard, what I, did you think? I, I agree with both of you on the flimsy kind of nature of if you're going to go after a president, don't go after a former president for hush money payments to a porn star. I mean, it's a silly case. Like, go after him for January 6th if you mm -hmm. can make a case, which I think you can. Go after him for Georgia if you can make a case, which I think you can. It, yep. I think it's stupid. This is a stupid case to be breaking precedent on. On the other hand, we're a nation of laws, and if you break the law, no one's supposed to be above the law. And I don't know. On the other hand, point, Howard, I think we do. That's where the deference part comes in, right? Because just to bring it back to Clinton Winsky again, like, you no, know, I think most people now, given at the eyeball test, he he definitely lied under oath in that deposition. And he did, but the reason he did it, the, the reason he ultimately was sort of forgiven is that everyone kind of knew he did it because he was embarrassed about his conduct. And that kind of is the hush money payment thing, too. It's like, you know, I think people are trying to make it out. Did he do it to win the election? I mean, listen, he did something really stupid. He didn't want it to get out. He's married. Like, there, there is a part of that that I think it's just not the best case for the, the public tends to, you know, we're so polarized on Trump, but it's just not, to your point, it's not the one. Yeah. On the other hand, I think that the optics strip all that away. The optics of Donald Trump sitting muted at a defense table in a criminal case in a courtroom, looking like hell, <laughs> pardon the expression, but looking like hell and, and looking small. Like his whole persona is to always look bigger than anybody else and anything else, but he looks small and diminished and muted. And I think that optic actually does eventually harm him from a political point of view. Yeah, I got I to gotta disagree with you because there's nobody I know that plays the victim better than Donald J. Trump. And he's going to say that he didn't look little. He's going to say he's in better shape than he was as president, <laughs> that he's more physically fit. <laughs> and that was a bad picture drawn by somebody who obviously supported Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. 
and is enamored with Alvin Bragg. But those are things that he's going to have to begin to sell to not just his base, but to people who who kind of feel like we do, that maybe maybe this wasn't the best use of the justice system. And, and I agree with you, Howard, no one is above the law, but there is deference at every step of holding people accountable for violations and, and which violations rise to the level of bringing somebody in to put together charges that even New York state law says could be a felony if 15 steps can be proven. Remember, this entire case about the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels was not pursued by the federal jurisdictional agency who would be able to look at charges like that and say they were a campaign violation. And that's the Federal Election Commission. The United States Department of Justice said, eh, this is a, not a case that we believe is worth pursuing at a federal level. And then you throw in Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg decides that he wants to test a New York law that allows for cases to go from misdemeanor to felony if there was an intent. Well, if the federal agencies who are in charge of determining whether federal intent was broken or the law was broken, how in the world does Alvin Bragg think, unless he's going to get a sympathetic jury, which he will, likely in the city of New York, and at some point... Is that worth setting a precedent that's going to, I believe, adversely affect politicians from both parties for decades to come? Or should you let the federal agencies who had jurisdiction on federal felonies take the case, which they chose not to? Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I think part of it on the impact is that I, I just, you know, people's views of Trump are so baked. I, I I mean, there is not a single person in the country I can imagine that has like a wishy-washy view. I mean, there's always people that I guess do, but he, you know, so you just have, even the, even the Democrats who think this was probably not a good idea, don't care that much. I mean, it, it, they should to a certain extent, because again, you never, when the shoe's on the other foot, I don't want some rogue conservative district attorney bringing stupid cases against a former Democratic president or former Republican president. The public, I think, tends to distinguish between crimes that involve things that are embarrassing with personal conduct, which I think this is, and using your public office to do things that are just inherently, you know, unconstitutional, which is what I think is being looked at in the Georgia case and in uh, the federal investigation. So I think we're all kind of saying the same thing. I think the one thing that we know now, though, is that just given how this case is going to go, I mean, you know, he is the central character in this presidential election, and it, it just ensures that he is that he's not going away. And, you know, we had some podcasts, Howard, I was rolling back the tape a little bit, which we all like to do when we think maybe we can find something that we said that's right. But, you know, we've had some podcasts that <laughs> That we have, it's like when you say something that you wish is going to be true and you you say it in a hopeful way that you hope it's a fact. Some of our poor Republican colleagues, uh, Rodney, this is more before you got here, but Caitlin Towner have just, they have insisted this is the end of Trump. They're just like, after the midterms, you know, he's done. I think he's irrelevant. And I have never felt that way just because 
I think it's I think it's religion with some people. And I, I mean, just look at the polls, look at the news coverage this week, and the guy's not going anywhere. Well, I mean, the sheer fact that I'm talking to you two losers on a Friday morning doing a podcast shows that it's not irrelevant. I mean, come on. He's the reason I got to put up with you two morons. Um, <laughs> you had come on the Beltway briefing during the primary. I think this could have, yeah, that would have been It could have changed things, Rodney. Totally. <laughs> hey, in all, in all seriousness, you know, when you look at this, is the question that I know a lot of folks are thinking about is does this help him politically or does this hurt him politically? And and really, I, I think he's at a ceiling. So to give a little bit of credit toward Caitlin and Towner, his ceiling is much lower than it was in 2016 and even the 2020 reelection. So he's got to drive everybody else's numbers down, which is why you see him attacking Ronnie D right now. You're going to see him attacking Glenn Youngkin pretty quickly since Youngkin's kind of popped his head up again. But if you look back to last Tuesday, if there were some, if there was some real anger in those low propensity only Trump voters to get out there and send a message to the big Democrats, well, that didn't work. In Wisconsin, the Republican Supreme Court nominee in one in the most expensive Supreme Court race ever in our nation's history got beat by ten points because those voters didn't go out. And when you look at the city of Chicago, and and, and I'll admit, I, I, I'm I was a little bit surprised by this. Brandon Johnson was able to come out and beat back an anti-crime message from Paul Vallis. So I don't see a bump in Trump because of this case. Uh, and and frankly, it's how far can he fall, which there's a low ceiling, but there's also a low floor as to where he can go too. I do think that there are a lot of people who hate Trump, but who also hate what was done here. I mean, I've yeah. talked to many of them. And I, I think it plays into this notion that, by the way, I, I think we would all agree is real that there's a gotcha. And look, I guess it I guess it's on both sides, but an anti I don't know what exactly to call it, but an anti an anti establishment, I'll just say that an anti establishment kind of theme running through running through not just our politics, but our culture. And I think people don't like that how it how that plays itself out politically. We'll see. I mean, I think it could help some of these other candidates on the on the right if they're able to they're able somehow to get past Trump in, in the primary and get to a general. I think some of this stuff could be really helpful because there are people who hate Trump, but also hate the feeling like Trump is being persecuted or prosecuted literally because he's anti-establishment. And I think that's going to take my argument is that's going to take some of the if you're trying to draw distinctions, if you're one of these challengers, this hanging out there and being a part of the broader conversation is taking time away from you making the arguments you want to make on why it should be you and not him. And Rodney, to something you said, I mean, I don't think he's, a, I don't know what the heck he does for what reasons, but I don't think he's attacking the challengers because their numbers are going, I, he just attacks, he attacks people. That's what he does. I mean, that, and all these people are going to experience it. All of these semi-declared candidates, people are kind of exploring it. 
who think it's going to be different. I mean, the guy is a master at getting up there and smacking people around and making them look small. And, you know, that someone is going to have to show an ability to handle that hit back in a way that doesn't seem, you know, there's just an entertainment value that he has that is unique and no one's been able to figure out how to beat him back with it in a, you know, Republican primary context. You are hundred percent correct. And here's another question. I think the listeners have to ask themselves when that becomes entertainment value, when there is a debate stage, once again, are they going to, on every news media outlet, give Donald J. Trump, the former president, who they gleefully thought was going to be indicted every day of his presidency, are they going to give him billions of dollars in free earned media above everyone else to lead him to the Republican nomination, which is exactly what happened in 2016, to the surprise of many of us? Didn't happen as much in 2020, though. He was I mean, president. he obviously was president, so he had automatic free airtime i guess you'll you'll argue but it and wasn't he had no competition and he had no competition it's true so that's a dumb point that i just made but it wasn't like they were showing every campaign rally like they were i mean in 2016 it was like every time he gave a speech cnn cut to his speech and like played it in its entirety and everybody was just soaking it in and uh god i mean these guys it's gonna be a long then, year it's going to be a very long year. And and frankly, right now, he is the leading nominee. And it looks like it, if I were to place money, it'd be a, a rematch between he and Biden, which I think Biden would win again. Um, but but in the end, is is this going to be the only choice we have? And and if it is, then you're going to start to see people, you know, pick shirts or skins. They're, okay. they're yeah. going to pick their political side. OK, so before we switch to our next topic, Trump or the field? I'm taking the field. Patrick? Trump. Trump. Uh, Rodney? As, as much as I hate to say it right now, um, where everyone's at, Trump's in the lead, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you win, Howard. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do what I can to make sure the field takes him out. And we've got to move beyond, just like in Illinois, we got to move beyond billionaires running for governor to get oh back God. to some sense of normalcy. The reason I think that, though, is kind of my point that I have never heard a compelling argument for why it's the field other than it's what people hope. Every it's always every Republican I talk to, it's like, God, I really hope that it's not it's it can't be this again. And it's it's just I feel for these people because it's like you're living in it's got to be really hard. I think about this on the Democratic side. If you just want the party to be something that you remember it being but that's not what you're living in right now and you're watching it and you know it's a bad idea to do it again, but the people who are ultimately deciding are the ones who are in control. I mean, this is what Washington Republicans, Rodney, the operative class deal with every day. They just, they're like, we're the party of Reagan, of Bush. I cannot believe we're gonna do this again, but the people who are deciding out in the country, they're just, they got a whole different deal. They, Republican primary voters are just, they're, they're still into it. Well. A, a good number of them are, yeah. and and a, and more of them felt sympathy towards Donald Trump because of what happened last week. However, yep. however, Democrats like you were in the same boat just recently in the last presidential election when Bernie Sanders at this point was the front runner, and until Democrats 
Democrats decided to come together in South Carolina, um, there was a legitimate shot for Bernie Sanders to be your nominee, which would have led to Donald Trump being reelected. And Democrats in the rest of the field said, okay, how do we figure this out? Now, here's the difference, though, guys. You have leaders at all levels of the Republican Party that I think are going to be more deferential to supporting Trump than leaders of the Democratic Party were to supporting Bernie Sanders. So I don't know. I, agree with South Car- I don't know if a South Carolina moment could happen <laughs> on the Republican side. I hope it does. And I'll be right there to help it if it can. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure right now that Mitch McConnell has the ability to lead that lead that discussion. Yeah. So let's pivot. Well, Mitch McConnell certainly doesn't at the moment, but let's let's pivot to China, which is I feel like, well, not I feel like I tell clients, we tell clients all day, every day, if you want to make an argument, I don't care if you're talking about U.S. agriculture or something completely domestic, what whatever the issue is on which you're trying to make headway in Washington, if you can find a way to wedge China into the conversation, that's your best hope from a political point of view. If this town is united around anything, it's China. And 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 I it is pretty united. I mean, it's there's there isn't the daylight politically on China that there is on on other issues. I'd say the parties aren't very far apart. Meanwhile, you've got Kevin McCarthy, your friend Kevin Rodney meeting with the the president of Taiwan um, after recently meeting with the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries. You know, it feels the tension is definitely ratcheting up between the U.S. and China. That's a that's obvious. I think you've also got China on the world stage trying to play a bigger role, brokering detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example, playing a a broader role in the Middle East, spreading its influence. They've they've got their own issues that people don't understand. They have massive internal political issues between local population and the and the urban populations they've got they've got massive internal political issues that are frankly their biggest concern but china is everywhere in washington right now rodney shed some light on mccarthy's meeting with the president of taiwan and and let's go from there well first of all you're right about if you have a client that wants to get ingratiated in the Republican and the Democrat side of the House of Representatives, find an anti-China link. I mean, we were in the minority for four years, and I can tell you, I voted on a lot of amendments in committees that somehow I had no idea China was engaged in. But you know what? Somebody made the case. And in the end, you look at where we are politically, as you said, uh, finding that anti-China link to make your case to where... You saw Kevin McCarthy go to yeah. Uh, you saw Kevin McCarthy go to California and meet with the leader of Taiwan. Yes, she met with Hakeem Jeffries in New York, which is great. I'm glad she did that. But what was amazing to me, and and this will not get enough coverage, Howard and Patrick, is that Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House, 
brought a bipartisan delegation to the Reagan Library to meet with the leader of Taiwan. Now, contrast that with Speaker Pelosi defying China a few years ago and taking a group of members of Congress to Taiwan. She had only Democrats. Kevin McCarthy brought Pete Aguilar. Trust me, as much as I watch those guys beat each other up, they're not best buddies. But what Kevin is trying to do, and we've seen this in his relationship with Hakeem Jeffries, is reset what was upset by Pelosi taking charge once again in 2019 of the U.S. House of Representatives, where I can attest Republicans were pushed out of the way and were not engaged in any of these discussions. And another not so widely known fact is that the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee right now, Mike McCall, is over in Taiwan with a bipartisan delegation that is getting getting covered by American media. This is a full-court bipartisan press right now to show our support to Taiwan, and I think it's great. Speaker Pelosi was a loud supporter. She said yesterday, I mean, the first nice thing she said about Kevin McCarthy ever was about this trip yesterday. So I don't even think there's, I mean, her visit was completely different. I You can point out yeah, that, yeah. it was all Democrats. Like, yeah, but she, she her, her statement yesterday, today's meeting between the president of Taiwan, Speaker McCarthy, is to be commended for its leadership, its bipartisan participation, and its distinguished and historic venue. That, like, there's no daylight. She she said it was great. I mean, I think it's- I'm not, saying there, was day, I'm not saying there was daylight. I'm just saying there's a stark difference in how the House was run when I was there and how the House is being run under Speaker McCarthy now. And, and I agree. I think it's great. I agree with her. I'm glad she put out that statement. Now, it wasn't as it wasn't as as, as uh, positive for Kevin McCarthy. She that whomever wrote that it was like channeling Drew Hamill once again to try and figure out a way to beat up McCarthy. So in the Illinois. Illinois alum. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. he loves no, I, me. I can tell you that. But you kind of led with this isn't going to get enough coverage. I, I mean, I think it's going to get coverage. I think he's doing a good job, and I think the media is going to fairly portray it as I think it's a good thing, and I think the fact that. Speaker Pelosi, who hates McCarthy's guts, was willing to say what she said. I mean, I, I think everyone, the Howard's initial premise of the China conversation, there isn't a lot of daylight between the two parties and everyone's not. Yeah. Rodney, why do you think McCarthy is running the House differently in your view? Why is he it's engaging in more bipartisanship to the extent that he actually is? Well, I will tell you, as somebody who was on the the back end of Pelosi's top-down approach uh, in my committee appointment as the ranking member of House administration and being frustrated that we couldn't get bipartisan agreement, I would have been the first one into McCarthy saying, you know, let them have it. Let's let's do what, do to them what they did to us. And I guarantee Kevin McCarthy would have said the same thing to me that he said to some of my former colleagues. That wasn't right. That's not the way to run an organization like the House. And remember, Kevin was a former staffer who got elected, who came up working the basics of the House. He was on our House Administration Committee before I got there. So he understands and has an appreciation for how the House operates. And I think he was frustrated by what how he was treated. And most of us would, would go back into the darkness of saying, let's punch back. But Kevin, I believe, when he got that speakership after the 15 ballots, realized that this place has got to change. And I got to commend him for doing it. And, you know, I've talked to some of my former staffers that are over there about this. And 
And they said, this is who Kevin is. He's the one personally pushing not to punish Democrats like he and I and Republicans were punished, uh, surprisingly, because Paul Ryan didn't run the House that way. And we all know John Boehner didn't run the House that way. But when the Democrats took over, there was a lot less bipartisanship than what we imagined would have taken place. So this is all on Kevin. And and frankly, I'm, I'm glad Speaker Pelosi, Patrick, uh, was able to put out a statement. But there's a big difference, too, right now. She's not in charge. She she kind of is a backbencher. Hey, to be relevant, she has to put out a statement. Patrick, did you hear that shameless plug for former staffers that become elected officials? Did you, did you pick that up? I liked it. I, I'm <laughs> I'm sure everything Rodney said is true about the speaker trying to do things differently. I also think the political reality of having a four seat majority and not having the type of grip over that caucus as a new speaker, as a new leader of the House that Pelosi, frankly, had over her very thin majority, I think is part of it, too. I mean, he's not dumb. He recognizes he's going to need Democrats sometimes to get things done. So it's in his best. It's, you know, people tend to do what's in their best interest. If he had a 30, 40 seat majority, would he be caring as much about bipartisanship? Probably not. I, I just think it's, you know, I think people tend to do what they need to do. And and I think this is smart that he's doing it this way. Patrick Eeyore Martin. <laughs> so where where does this go with with China and, and Taiwan? I guess the one question I have in the back of my mind is, God forbid China tries to take Taiwan by force and we're drawn into a military conflict, which we would be. I mean, I don't see any way... Let's see any way the U.S. backs away from that. Are are we real? Like everybody's like rah rah Taiwan, and you know their view of the world, and I share that. But I, I just doubt at the end of the day that there's going to be popular support here for military confrontation with China over an island in in Asia. I just doubt it. And so all the rabble rousing and rhetoric sounds good, but I, I worry about that. I mean, it, it is worrisome to me. You look at uh, what is I consider surprising opposition to helping to arm Ukrainians to protect themselves, and I think that's where you're going to to see a debate arise in Congress pretty quickly uh, that can be exacerbated by a you know a somewhat newer development publicly. But I think you'll start to see a debate on whether or not we can reprioritize how Washington spends money on defense. Uh, a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats, I think, are going to join together, the Freedom Caucus and the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic side, to try and figure out a way to cut military spending. At some point, we've got to decide, are we going to arm our, our allies? Or are we going to have to come in and fight for our allies if an offensive attack is made against an island like Taiwan? by China. But I think that, and, and this is where I'd like to hear your perspective, Howard, with your background in the Department of Treasury, you know, the the march toward a, a new currency by some of the most powerful nations and most populous nations in the world, China, India, Russia, Brazil, South Africa, and I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else. But what does that mean for the world economic stage? Because I think at the point where China and those countries believe they have an economic alliance 
that could turn into a military alliance, which that's when I think you start to see countries like China become more bold militarily. Yeah, I think it's, I think it ultimately somewhat circular in that I think it ties back to our debt and deficit and the value of, of the U.S. dollar and um, the stature of the United States. And I think it's, I, I think it is a concerted effort to, to undermine the U.S. And it's, I don't know that it necessarily succeeds at the end of the day. I mean, I, I think the U.S. is still the most important country on the face of the earth. And I think the U.S., like if you go, they're happy to take Chinese money in South Africa. I just don't think at the end of the day that South Africa, just as a, to pick an example, aligns itself with China to the point where they become their benefactor. I just, I don't see that happening. And what about India? That's the one that scares me the most. India, I think India hates China more than they hate anybody. And so I, I think that there's a lot of nationalism in India, but they want foreign investment. They want to do business. I'm working on a matter right now uh, in India. I have a meeting. I have several meetings next week with people in government that are focused on India. And so I'll tell you more in a week, Rodney. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, India is a very important player, and I think they're going to they're not straying from the US at the end of the day. There are too many pressures on the other side. But it is, look, it is, it's, this is challenging. I do think, I mean, you're right to point that out, Rodney, because I think the economic battle is as, as important or more important than the military battle. And I'm not sure we can like find a way to get our house in order economically. I don't know that there is a right answer on spending and like we boxed ourselves into a corner. This isn't a 2023 problem. It's a last 70 year problem and we're in a tough spot. So yeah, it's tough, Patrick. No, I was just thinking, I mean, one of the things I've liked about the select committee and, you know, I, you never know how many people are watching. That's always the big issue. But I just think there's a lot of education that needs to take place with the American public about China. And I think, you know, seeing a bipartisan select committee like this try to raise some some issues is important because I just, you know, I don't think ordinary Americans really understand the threat. And so the more that both parties can draw attention to you know, what China's goals are um, and how some of the things that happen here in the United States, you know, impact that. And, and you know, the uh, it would be great if the committee could focus on sort of our long-term debt and how that's a vulnerability. Um, the problem is it would get partisan pretty quickly, which is unfortunate. Even things like how our political discourse benefits our adversaries. Like, I, I, I continue to believe that, you know, the greatest beneficiaries of like all of this, you know, 
sort of political back and forth Americans versus Americans are are China and Russia and the countries that don't want to see the U.S. be successful in this century. But I don't think people understand that when they're yelling at each other on Facebook. They don't get that that this is all kind of being orchestrated to a certain degree by countries that don't don't like us, don't like our way of life, don't want to see us succeed and want to tear us apart. Just to chime in on that, Patrick, yeah. to the extent that we're being manipulated by social media and like bots and yeah. Russian and Chinese manipulation of our dialogue, I of course agree. But to the extent that democracy is messy and playing itself out and people disagree and and we have a, a sometimes loud but open discourse is actually that I, I actually believe that is our superpower. And, I, and, yeah. and Ch China doesn't have that. Totally and, and they can't have it because they need to suppress local populations in order to control the country. And and that's why they have more. Pro Everybody looks at them as if they're this like all powerful controlling entity, but they actually they have huge domestic problems. Agreed. And and another one on freedom of the press. I mean, I think all three of us share a common cynicism about the American press, how things get covered. You know, you can go into that at length. But to pivot a little from China to Russia, I mean, what we saw this 30 year old kid who got, you know, arrested by the Russians for espionage. It's another reminder of what makes us different. We don't do that here. And those are the types of things we need to shout from the rooftops. This guy was just doing right. his job. He was over in a very dangerous part of the world, covering this war for the Wall Street Journal and watching what the Russians do to, I mean, they're, they're I saw something they're like considered last uh, or in the bottom five countries for how they treat reporters. I mean, that stuff, we, we just, for all the cynicism in America, like we need to remind people Howard, you mentioned like our superpower, like the things that make this country great, which is that you can, <laughs> you can, you know, you can work for a print publication and say what you want. You don't have to get worried about getting thrown in prison. And I guess that's why, Rodney, back to your point about Speaker McCarthy and the bipartisanship, I guess that is right on point in terms of what I just said. I mean, it's, he's emphasizing our superpower, which is the ability for people with different points of view to come together. You're right. And, and in the end, um, the, the question that's, that's going to be left hanging at the end of this podcast is, you know, are Americans going to appreciate our ability to have a freedom of the press and freedom of speech enough to not force politicians to change that? Uh, I mean, look, social media and, uh, policing of what's said on social media is 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 continuing to go at the forefront of our political debate. Uh, I can tell you as somebody who every time my team tweeted something out on my behalf when I was in Congress, uh, you know, it would be picked up by our local media and and used as kind of my own voice um, rather than the the fifteen to twenty direct live interviews that I would do each week. And in the end, I I feel liberated, like other Americans should. I haven't been on social media since I left Congress. I haven't posted a single post uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any other social media outlets. And you know what? I haven't missed it at all. And in the end, 
I think what Americans have to do is take a step back and realize what's causing them this disagreement and what's causing them to question America's freedoms and responsibilities. And, and in the end, we got to get back to the one responsibility that matters the most. And that's personal responsibility. Nobody wants to take personal responsibility for any of their decisions or actions anymore. That to me is what's frustrating. And I think it's been exacerbated by social media, by the exact same things that happen in other countries that we produce ourselves rather than have it directed from the top down to government like in Russia. Yeah. Back to your point about the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency and and economics. It's If you want to figure out the answer to any problem, follow the money. This ultimately... If we could get our house in order from a financial point of view, we will maintain, which is difficult, if not impossible, but but if, 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 we, there's no question that we, in my mind, that we maintain our global supremacy. If you can identify what we have as, as global supremacy, we maintain our, we're, we're in the pole position. It's just, and and that's why I hate, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of extremes. And, and certainly I want the debt ceiling not to, not to launch into a 30 minute discussion on the debt ceiling as we wrap up, but everybody's kind of right in that whole debate, not in the specifics, but, but in, in the macro sense, like everybody's got, got a point and gosh, if we could get or you know what together we would we'd just be off to the races it's just it's very hard nobody wants to sacrifice but i feel like we have so much else going for we're still the this is still the country where people feel like a dollar invested is safer than anywhere else in the world i mean we've got we still have so much going for us that we just need to get we need to get our house in order maybe we're maybe china becomes the the unifying issue and and a way to do that and kind of bring people together well i, I hope you're right and and patrick i'd love to hear your comments i mean at, at some point we all know what the drivers of the debt are mm-hmm. and congress fights over 25% of all federal spending on an annual basis when 75 to almost 80% right now is on autopilot I mean, you know, when you worked at Treasury, Howard, we could have in Congress shut the government down for years and still 75 to 80 percent of all federal expenditures would have still gone out the door at Treasury. Yeah. So in the end, we have to either whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's economic security or whether it's changing the debate from seniors believing that politicians are going to take away their benefits they've earned, which they're not. Or are they going to start to care whether or not these systems are going to be in place and have to make some reforms to them for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren? I don't know what is that that common denominator other than insolvency. And insolvency is coming faster than we think. And then you look at, I mean, you know, politicians in our country have been watching what's been happening in France. My wife was just over there with her mom uh, last week and just talking to people. It's just so interesting. You have the president there going out on a limb to try and do something to help 
you know, the country's pension system survive for the long term, a two year age raise. And there's been protesting, you know, real protesting for several weeks. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Rodney. Listen, I, I mean, everyone knows at the core what we got to do. And we've tiptoed around it over the last 15 years, a number of different times, gotten close, uh, sometimes not so close. But but it involves, you know, everyone having the political will to do it and not being too concerned about what the impact in the next election is going to be. And that's that's a challenge for some people, for a lot of folks elected office. So that I, I hope we do, because um, to, to Howard's point, I think if I totally agree with everything you said, Howard, if we get our financial house in order, you know, and it's it's baby steps, too. We don't need to fix everything all at once. We're not all yeah. of us aren't we're smart. We're not hoping for a miracle here. But, you know, to take some concrete steps to set us in the right direction. The problem is that a lot of Americans don't recognize that there's a problem or they're very cynical about either party's interest in really solving a problem if there is one. And we we have a we have an issue there just with getting everyone or most people on the same page about what we need to do. Cause I, I don't think we're there yet. Or I don't think we're even close. Well, for three guys who said this was a slow news week and weren't sure there was enough to talk about, we covered some serious ground. So wishing everybody a uh, happy holiday weekend here and we will be back next week. Rodney, Patrick, thanks as always, and we will uh, be back. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.